I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of All Things Policy. I'm Harshit Kukreja. Today as my guest, I have my colleague Priyal. Hello Priyal, how are you? I'm doing good Harshit. Thank you for having me here today. How have you been? All good, all good. So today we had a discussion last week, Priyal and I. And we were trying to read about... And we, would, we, were, we are now trying to... We have developed as one of our focus areas of using learning from biology into policy. We are trying to develop that. So for that, we, we were doing some reading. And there's a very interesting book that we like charged upon. It's called Why Humans Cooperate. So today we'll, we'll have a discussion around what we found interesting in this book. And basically one part of this very interesting book. Yeah, but I think, Harshad, before we begin, there's there's something that I would like to say before we start, right? So as the, our listeners might know about the Takshila Institution, but just to give a formal introduction, the Takshila Institution is an independent, a non-partisan think tank. And we also are a school of public policy. And we gen- we have education programs that sort of are catered to people who want to get some basic information about policy and how things work around. And there are courses that are tailored specifically for for people who are interested into diving into the public policy side of things. And they're all online and you can take them from anywhere. So currently we have admissions that are open for our 12-week graduate certificate program in public policy, defense and foreign affairs and technology and policy. And the cohort starts on in September 2022 and the applications are um, now open. So if you want more information about this course and how to apply and for the applications, please do visit school.takshashela.org.in slash jcpp to find out more. And also you can log into takshashela.org.in for all our research and all our commentaries, etc. Especially essentially what we do in this organization. Thanks, Priyal, for... Such a nice plugin. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah, I think like essentially like what Harshit spoke about, we were discussing about this particular book and we kind of wanted to see if there are any concepts of biology that we can sort of apply in the field of public policy and see if we can get any insights from biology when it comes to solving public policy problems, right? And that's where we discovered this book, which both Harshit and I found a little interesting so we thought let's read it let's see if we can get any beginner's idea about how to you know how to apply certain concepts and stuff so that's where the the initial idea for this podcast even generated yeah so the book i think a lot of people would be familiar with this concept called dual inheritance theory Right. But I think if we were to sort of like, if I were to define dual inheritance theory for people who aren't too aware of it, is that it is basically a theoretical framework that sort of says that human biology and human behavior 
they are influenced by two lines of inherited information. Okay, so one is the genetic line and the other one is the cultural line. So in genetic line is that all the characters and everything are inherited from their biological parents. And when it comes to the cultural line, it says that it is, you know, it is basically unique to our species and be inherited from the other members of our society. All right. And so basically to sum it all up, it takes into account that uh, of the evolution of our capacities for that is culture, which is sophisticated social learning and the cultural evolution in itself and sort of that interaction or sort of the co-evolution of uh, culture and genes over uh, thousands of years. So, yeah. So I think if we like explain it with an example, it would be much better. I have a very good example, but do tell me if I, if it gets, if it like tends to end in a circle and it gets too circular. So, so yeah. So for instance, there are a group of hunter-gatherers hmm. who live together. Right. And what happens is because of a genetic evolution, a mutation. Mutation, up, yeah. Yeah, mutation ends up being in one person of the group. Which makes him more likely to cooperate with other people. Right. And slowly, slowly, because he's now, and he forms sort of like a different group. He forms a different subsection of people who are more likely to cooperate with each other because they share the same gene. Right. And because they're hunter-gatherers and they and they are now living in groups. So people who cooperate with one another have an evolutionary advantage. Hmm. And because cooperating, people can now see, the hunter-gatherers can now see that if you cooperate, you get better sort of like game, you get better resources, you get better food, you are right. also protected against animals and elements and everything else. So there is also a short-term advantage which they can see there is a survival advantage. Mm, yeah. So now for cooperating, there is also cultural pressure that if you will cooperate, if everybody cooperates with one another, and it is now expected that people will cooperate. So, the people who tend to cooperate more are more likely to survive in that group and more likely to be accepted in that group. Right. So, what happens is because of cultural pressure, the cooperation gene is pushed more because the people who tend to cooperate more mm-hmm. have better chances of surviving in that surviving in that group and being a part of that group. Right. And because so the genetic the gene is now pushed, The this trait is now pushed more. And because this trait is now pushed more, so a, a majority of people in the group now have, now have that mutation. Hmm. And because a majority of people have that mutation, which makes cooperate more. So there's also genetic pressure to cooperate more. Right. So cultural is sort of influencing genetic traits passing into offspring. And genetic traits are now influencing culture. Mm. So both of them influence one another. It's sort of like a gene culture co-evolution thing. Right. So yeah, that and I that's I think what dual inheritance theory is all about, right? It is all about the co-evolution of genes and culture and how both of them sort of influence each other. It's like a loop where both of them influence each other to form that particular looping in place. Yeah, so, so it's very interesting to read and it's Sometimes, at least for the first time when I read it, I think a few years back, I was a little confused because I thought ki, I understand that genetics will obviously influence your 
culture and influence your behavior. But I thought the timelines were very different because genes, if you look at a genetic timeline, it it, it is like generational. Hmm. It's like, like a generational thing. And cultural would operate on a much smaller timeline. Right. I, I had a difficult time wrapping my head around how the timelines intersected and how would they influence. But now I, I, I hope I, I am like much clearer and I'm able to convey this information in a much clearer way. <laughs> right. But I think you explained it fairly well because, I mean, essentially, in the, I think when you first read it initially, it becomes a little difficult to wrap your head around it because I think so much of our whatever educational studies and everything, at least when it comes to biology and stuff, core biology, we focus more mainly on the only on the genetic side of it, right? We don't really study culture alongside and we don't really know how they sort of influence each other. But I think after I started reading this book was when I, when I sort of take when I sort of understood how how it is sort of interlinked and I'm sort of reading more about in what way and stuff like that. Yeah, it's like quite fun. There, there is, I think there's no intersection of social sciences with biology and yeah. education in our country. Right, fair enough. Even though it's very interesting and it has like very real world applications. Yeah. But there's no inter, like I have nowhere, even in elite institutes, I've never seen this intersection, except for a very few minority, like a very small minor percentage of people who are working, like researching in this field, but them have like seen no one. So when we are talking about culture, a few interesting things which I like came across. So culture is when you like culture and learning is when you like learn from other people and then you pick up habits and that is when you become part of, then you learn the culture of that place right, right. or yeah. your parents or your caste or your family or whatever group you adhere hmm. to, whatever, your right. religion, whatever you adhere to. So, but there's one major issue with learning, at hmm. least learning like this, that information is very costly. Yeah. So there, there are always trade-offs be- uh, between acquiring sort of like accurate behavioral information and and time and resources. Right. So also, I think it means that basically what it says is that when you have like these behavioral information, if it is, so you have to, there are two ways, right? There is, you acquire like accurate behavioral information at a very high cost or like less accurate, inform, accurate information at a very low cost. That kind of a thing. Yeah, it's, a, it's a trade-off. You have to optimize your resources and you'll have to see that how... Like beneficial is it for you to get maybe like 30-40% more accurate information at 2x or 3x the time and resources cost. It's very, it's very interesting that how we have learned to optimize these things. For instance, I did not like write for articles and everything else. I, I mean research articles. <laughs> Both, when I started writing research articles, there were two ways of learning how to write research articles. So either it's you write and you learn from your colleagues and your professors and your yeah, yeah. else. The other way is you take a course course. Full, a writing course, basically. Yeah, a full three months, six months course. But that is a very costly thing to do. That is acquiring accurate information at a very high cost. And compare that to learning from colleagues and learning from learning while you are writing. That is a... Sort of yeah. like acquiring information at low cost. 
having a good house, having a car, having a lot of money is tied to success. Mm-hmm. So when you see maybe somebody in your field who is like, who has a big house, drives a large car, a very like Audi, I don't know, Audi or something, and has a lot of money. So you associate that with success and you say that, oh, so if I do what he has done or if I do what she has done, then my chances of being successful is more. Right. So you try to replicate whatever sort of like he or she has done. So one more example, this, I think this podcast is filled with us trying to explain things with example. Yeah. I think one of the was. A striking example that I could find was, I think, especially with the prestige and success bias was that, for example, if you have like a PhD person, you know, entering a department and sort of aiming to get a tenure, right? She wants a tenure at the day. So so she will choose whom to sort of, she will assess whom, who steps to follow, right? And she can do it in multiple different ways. So for first thing, if she has to assess a person's, if she wants, if she wants to assess a person's prestige, then she can do it by either like listening or observing how people sort of like act towards one another. And if she's like really, really serious about it, she might actually pull out people's CV or like she can see how many number of publications these people have. And this could give her a fair idea of, you know, success in that way. Now, even if even after that, if she still wants to go a step further, she might actually read everybody's papers and, you know, and sort of see how, watch how they teach the students and everything. So this will now give her a measure of skill of a certain type. So now she she's found like different ways of assessing people based on like their, their prestige, their uh, success as well as their skill. And then overall, she can then determine who fits into her category of like, you know, out of these three things, now that she's fairly assessed everybody, whose work that she needs to closely follow to sort of reach that level herself. So that kind of gives you a fair idea about how people sort of, you know, go after, uh, observe people very closely and have their own subjective, what do you say, method of analyzing these sort of biases, have these biases in them. Yeah, that was a, I think that was wonderfully explained, that PhD example. Right. So before we proceed, let us take a short break and we'll come back. Yeah, sure. Hello listeners, welcome back to All Things Policy. In this episode, we were talking about biases, biology and policy and trying to use biological insights. So Priyal, welcome back. So, yeah, hi. Were, so I think we'll continue after your PhD example. So you were saying about success and prestige biases. Right. Yeah. So I think when I was talking about like the PhD example also, and when you talk about, when you generally talk about, I think the success and prestige bias, cultural learning, you kind of observe few things, right? One is that these sort of like these imitative patterns that you see when when I gave you the PhD example, also I told you how she can, that person, that PhD student can sort of assess what whose behavior or whose pattern 
that she needs to follow or something. These kind of, they spontaneously sort of, these imitative patterns, they sort of spontaneously appear in, you know, incentivized uh, circumstances. Uh, obviously, that there is some sort of monetary benefit or any other kind of returns, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, this thing. And also in non-incentivized circumstances. Also, surprisingly, it's also there in both non-social situations or, or even the social situations where there could be potential competition between between the learners. Also, and another thing that I also noticed was that these kind of effects that are there, they are they come in in broad context. In it, it, this context could be in terms of like you know your the uh, economic decisions that you might take. Or even on your opinions, your personal opinions or your ideologies or even like, you know, in your preferences when it comes to food, whether it is some of your personal beliefs or even stories, etc. And even they can play a role in like, they could come to play in, in some sort of like, you know, in terms of even conflict situations. Another thing is also that this kind of cultural learning that we observe is sort of very, it very much critically depends on the degree of uncertainty which is found in the environment. For example, you gave the farmer's example, right? Where you, uh, so this is, farming is fairly a very uncertain environment in itself because there's so much of variability that is found, right? Because, no, so at that point, these sort of biases play a significant role because you assume that, oh, if this person did this particular thing and he got such a high yield, so I am also going to do the same thing Hoping that I'm also going to get the same yield. You're not going to sit and analyze as to why that particular thing worked for this guy to give such a significant amount of yield kind of thing. And uh, these sort of learning patterns also emerge when, you know, there is the based with the model's domain of competence, success, or even prestige is sort of unrelated to the domain and sort of question. So these are some of the learnings that I personally found uh, when I was sort of reading about these biases. Yeah, so about the last point you said, <laughs> that even if, for instance, one person does not have expertise or is not like successful in one field, but he's super successful in another. Right. So people tend to follow whatever it says in this field. So, for instance, Amitabh Bachchan says that, oh, so Chaman Prash is very good for your health and it will make your immunity stronger. Yeah. People tend to believe that. that. Yeah, believe that. Yeah, even like, for example, like Shah Rukh Khan saying that, listen, I put head and shoulders in my hair, so I don't get dandruff. So people, yeah. he's not, he's not a dermatologist of any kind but he's successful in his acting career so people just believe ki, oh yeah if Shah Rukh Khan puts this and doesn't get dandruff in his head so if I put it also I'm also not going to get yeah There's even no... though but somewhere you know that he does not have expertise in this but yeah yeah more yeah. than he doesn't somewhere you know that he doesn't but even then your belief you know you tend to sort of want to follow what he's doing simply because his degree of success is so huge that even if it's a small part of it is something that gives you some kind of advantage, you're going to believe that, right? Yeah. Even though you know it's an ad, he's getting yeah, paid yeah. for it. Yeah. That is that is the thing. And that is, uh, I think when we understand all these biases and when we understand that how people sort of like try to learn from each other and try to, and how people can 
be influenced and so the policy implementation and policy formation would be much like much better right right yeah so the second type of context biases hmm. a conformity bias so conformity biases when you try to conform to whatever the standards are there in the sort of like in the room hmm. whatever the standards are in the society or in whatever group we adhere to or whatever at that time whatever group we are looking at and in that also the book broadly classifies the biases into informational conformity right. and normative conformity. So right. information conformity is when you see people doing something and you right. believe that because a lot of people are doing this, this will help. You sort of like actually believe that and you change your uh, internal opinions and beliefs. Compared it to normative. Normative conformity is you only conform because you don't want to appear like deviant. So right. I'll give you an example. A lot of offices have a practice of getting MacBooks. Yes. Apple. Yeah. So when the new person comes, he says that, he says that out of the 20 people working there, 15 have MacBooks. MacBooks. And he talks to people and he, but he previously used a Windows laptop. So he talks to people and now he's convinced that, oh, so MacBooks are better for whatever work we do at the office. And we should, I should get a MacBook. And he gets a Mac, MacBook. The other sort of like the normative conformity is when you see that, oh, so everybody has a MacBook. <laughs> and now you want to have a MacBook because you don't want to appear like a deviate. Right, you don't want but to appear too different from the from the group, right? Yeah. So you will maybe have to get a MacBook. There are certain repercussions to that. Maybe they're like maybe some they're like practical problems because books they all link up with each other like very well. Or maybe people don't like. Maybe his boss doesn't like when he gets a Windows laptop. Right, his boss prefers a a MacBook, and everybody prefers a MacBook, so he doesn't want to appear like a deviator, rebel. So, this is normative conformity. So, now your internal beliefs are not changed. But you no. want to... Still uh, conform to the group, right? So, you are going to stick to that. Yeah. So, it's like a, it's a bias. So, you yeah. try to like not be deviant. You don't want to be the odd one out. Right. You change your superficial behavior. But your opinions and beliefs, your internal beliefs remain same. You still believe... That a Windows laptop is better than a <laughs> MacBook, but because everybody has that, and you don't want to like upset people, you know, no <laughs> upset people, so you get a MacBook, right? So it's a sort of like a conformity bias, right? Yeah, it's a very, I can say, it's a very interesting need when you see that how people tend to pick up cues and how people like see other people and how people see information and how people see knowledge and how people see how society and as a whole and how people measure success yes. and how you can try to use that to your advantage when you are designing policies and when you are trying to make a, an existing policy better. For instance, if you want people, for instance, what the health ministry did was they roped in Amitabh Bachchan for the Pulse Polio campaign. Yeah. 
and it was the face of that campaign and a lot of people because Amitabh Bachchan the message was coming through Amitabh Bachchan hmm. you have to keep that in mind that he has no expertise in vaccination yeah. or health he's not uh, from a biology background or a background from a public health background he's not remotely related to all these things he's a famous superstar he's a famous right. star if he says Maybe something about making movies or acting or anything else. That is what I think is like all right because yeah, uh, I think that sort of I think extension also happened during COVID, right? When the government wanted to motivate or get people to wear more masks and stay at home and everything during the first phase of the pandemic, there was this one video that was circulating around of Amitabh Bachchan and a lot of big names of South superstars. And all of these sort of, which, uh, they were looking for, I think, specs or spectacles or something. So they roped in a lot of film stars that a huge demographic of people could relate to because they're their superstars, right, of their region or their state or something. And they got, they got them, that was some sort of like a way to sort of get people to understand that staying at home is important during COVID and stuff like that. So that that bias thing has been applied. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it has been applied. Yeah, so you know that even if you like cannot put it, put that in like technical words and biases and yeah, categorize yeah. them. And so you know that, but it, it is like when you read it, it becomes obvious. So this is normal. Yeah, I mean, you obvious. don't consciously think of it when you're doing it. But when you read about these things, and then when you sort of try to look for examples, these kind of examples finally suddenly start making sense. You're like, oh, wait, yeah, this actually is an example for this particular bias. And we do apply this a lot in our real life. But we don't know that this is a bias in the first place, right? Because, you know, we were, at least I wasn't aware of it until I read the book. Yeah, I don't think I'd like thought about it a lot before reading this particular source. So one more example is there's a scientist called as Fauci. So he was leading the sort of regular updates in US about COVID. <laughs> regular updates and he was sort of the face of the COVID effort. And I think in our discussion we discussed this. But what I thought at that time was because he has a very good scientific standing. He has been fighting infectious disease I think since the time of AIDS. The AIDS pandemic, he was part of something. He has that expertise. He has that standing. He knows the technical knowledge. He can answer questions. And but if you oh. would have put, I don't know, maybe Beyonce or maybe some superstar, how successful would that would have been? Would have been like too successful? Would have put the messaging been better or? Yeah, so th I think after reading this and after analyzing and after the few papers I went through, I think you have to pick your message and see that how does that work and how do you target. Because you can also oh. not dilute your message by giving that person 10 things. Yeah, you fair You cannot make Amitabh Pachit talk about polio. Multiple things, right? You can't make him talk yeah. about polio, tuberculosis, vaccination, COVID-19, all of that. That sort of does it dilute the message because one person is like sort of face the face of multiple campaigns yeah yeah so thanks Priya that was yeah, a very really fun, fun for discussion thanks for inviting me and for having this conversation with me this was quite fun yeah so bye 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 bye
If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at Takshashila INST or our website takshashila.org.in.